Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Yone Fwain, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Washington. Her lab studies the mechanisms of plasticity in the human brain by linking changes in function to changes in neuroanatomical structure, with a particular focus on the effects of early sensory loss and prosthetic vision. Welcome, Yone. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to um, use your uh, review article, um, Blindness and Human Brain Plasticity, uh, for our discussion. A lot of interesting things in here. Um, As I mentioned, I don't have a background in uh, neuroscience, but I have a lot of interest (laughs) in, in neuroscience, especially at the intersection of neuroscience and computer science. And um, and so in the abstract, you say early blindness causes fundamental alterations of neural function across more than 25% of the cortex. Um, so that is a huge, huge change, right? Uh, so, so what do we mean by early blindness? So when we talk about early blindness, um, there are basically sort of two major reasons why people become blind. Um, are blind at birth or closely after birth. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> of course, in a podcast, I immediately have to cough. <coughs> um, one is um, that there is cortical damage to the brain itself, yeah. caused by something like a stroke um, in utero. And the other is that something goes wrong with the development of the eyes or goes wrong shortly after birth in a way that causes blindness. Um, And the classic case of that are people, individuals with anophthalmia. So they essentially develop without the eyes ever developing properly or people who um, are born quite premature can sometimes the, the oxygen you give in a premature baby tank can sometimes really damage the retina. And so the, these people essentially never experience vision in their life. So usually when we live our life, about 25% of our brains is really fundamentally taken up with understanding the visual world, you know, understanding facial expressions, moving around, driving a car. 
And it operates incredibly independently. We don't even realize we're doing it. It doesn't take effort in the way that memory does or emotions do. And so we kind of don't notice it's there. But in these blind individuals, the entire way in which they interact with the world essentially has to shift to compensate. Yeah, I was thinking, um, you know, you know uh, neuroscientists don't like uh, <laughs> uh, when people make comparisons to uh, physical systems. But I was thinking about an autonomous, you know, AI-driven uh, vehicle. And if, if, you know, for whatever reasons, the video inputs are gone, um, we clearly haven't uh, designed anything that has any sort of plasticity. <laughs> you know, uh, the car is going to be completely useless uh, at that point. But uh, but that's not the case for the brain, right? The brain sort of um, tries to compensate some way to uh, to take care of the problem. Yeah. So. What I'm interested in is people who are blind due to ocular causes, not to cortical damage. Um, and what is amazing is, is if you see a blind individual who's been blind since early life, um, there's there's nothing dysfunctional in the way they interact with the world. You know they're blind because they're using a cane and a dog, but they're walking at the same speed as us. They're confident about where they're going. They're not asking for directions. They they are navigating the world, you know, almost as effortlessly as we do. And in fact, if the world was better designed for blind people, they might be navigating the world more in a more sophisticated way than we do. And so I just got really interested in how the brain has the ability to kind of make that transformation, given that we evolved as a, a visual species. Yeah, so um, I know that you also study animal models. So... Uh, what is sort of the biggest difference we see um, between a blind, non-human animal and, and a blind human? Um, well, I personally don't study animal models. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in them because I think this is one of the few systems, right? If we're looking at our, if we're kind of trying to understand the neuroscience of our emotions, animals don't really have the same emotions as us. Um, language, obviously not as well, but vision is something where animal models a, a, a macaque monkey has almost identical visual system to us. Mm. So they're, they're very good models. Um, what we see in the animal world is this amazing diversity in whether animals, how much animals rely on vision as opposed to audition or whiskers and things like that, depending on sort of whether they're prey or predators or kind of what niche they've they've fallen into. So I think what we can argue is that animals have an overabundance of sensory information. You know, there's whiskers, there's touch, there's audition, there's hearing, and most animals specialize in one way or another. You know, mice, mice are really blind. <laughs> mice have terrible vision. Um, dogs have really quite good vision. I'm amazed at how good my dog's vision has. And humans are very visual, but what's amazing is I think because um, we all kind of are generated with the same architecture. We all develop from this kind of evolutionary tree that includes animals that you know live in the dark. Our brains have the ability to sort of go back to it to kind of adapt and deal, become you know 
rely on audition and touch instead of relying on vision. And I think it's kind of almost an evolutionary accident that our brain has that capacity. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, for us, vision is so important, right? Um, Probably the most important uh, aspect of a human being from a sensory perspective um, would, would you agree with that? Is a large percentage of the brain really specializing in vision? Yeah, so about 25% of the brain is specialized in vision. That's far more than anything that's related to audition or touch, I mean, really, or motor skills. Um, it's a huge chunk of the brain. Um, and interestingly, as far as, you know, if you become blind late in life, it, yeah. it, it, it tends to be very, very disabling. It takes a lot of skill and training to learn how to kind of become fluent in these other um, senses. Interestingly enough, though, it seems that it's more important to us to be social than it is for us to be independent. So when you look at rates of depression, they're actually higher in people who become deaf, because when you're deaf late in life, that really makes it difficult to, to communicate with the world. That might be different now that you can kind of go on chat and Facebook and you can communicate using text. But before those that was available, um, deafness was actually a really um, high risk factor for late deafness was a very high risk factor for depression, more so than blindness. Um, You lose your dependence, but you can still maintain your relationships with other people. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, So. I guess it's to so some extent it depends on the personality of the individual, but generally speaking, um, with deafness, you are unable to communicate, you get isolated. If you're generally a social person, that has a huge negative effect, I would think. Yeah, no, it's very frustrating. Um, even kind of mild deafness has extraordinarily severe consequences. So one thing is, is if you're constantly trying to hear a conversation, you're often saying things a little late or you're saying things that are a little inappropriate. And so people like you're stupid um, and you're not, you're just having to put all this effort into understanding what people are talking about. And so, um, and that lack, and so you'll tend to kind of avoid socializing and talking with other people because it's a lot of work. And that actually is a risk factor for things like Alzheimer's. So I think, you know, our, our ability to socialize with other people is kind of, is, is really core to our, you know, vision is core to us making our way around the world, but um, audition and language are core to us kind of be, being a human and stay, 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 staying clever. I think that's why COVID has been so hard for some <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's obviously a, a different topic, but um, it'll be interesting to study what the sort of the psychological effects of lockdowns, um, perhaps the effects of this uh, may be going to surface a little later uh, in societies. Do you think we will, we will see some uh, significant effects? So I've been working at a university, so it's been fascinating. And what you see is that for people with kids, it's very stressful, but kids just are stressful. Yeah. Um, it's not psychologically difficult. For undergrads who are sort of or graduate students who are stuck in a room all by themselves and they don't have a whole kind of a whole family in place to lock down with, they they've really suffered. 
And the other difference, of course, is introverts and extroverts. Um, I have some I have some introverted colleagues who are not quite ready to go back to the office. Yeah, they found this very restful. Yeah, I heard uh, I heard some from somebody else that um, you know extroverts are are really miserable uh, <laughs> in COVID situation. <laughs> And uh, many of the, you know, real introverts uh, uh, became much happier um, uh, because, you know, they, they, they see, they, they feel like they have more control over what they want to do. So I, I guess, it, it, you know, it, it definitely depends on the personality, I think. Yeah. And, and maybe we'll have more flexibility in work environments, right? I think there had been this real push towards work environments that suited introverts, you know, open plan and things like that. And um, I think I think I think I think we might have an introvert insurrection. Though insurrections <laughs> have been given a bit of a bad name. Yeah, I mean that that would be very interesting, you know, it, it, um, because in the in the professional and academic situations, um, you know, uh, it's very important for one to be at least showing extrovert extrovert characteristics so many of the introverts sort of do that uh, because they have to (laughs) (laughs) yeah this might give them an escape route it it might well be i think you know we've we've learned other ways to kind of judge productivity and whether someone's getting things done and how they're contributing so um if we can keep the good stuff that would be great (laughs) So, so going back to the paper, um, you have defined a sort of different types of blindness or, or sort of categorization of blindness, right? Um, is this uh, sort of medical definitions that we use? Um, I have heard the term legally blind. So what, is, what does that mean? Oh, right. Okay. So basically, in every country, there's usually a definition of legally blind and legal low vision yeah and the exact definitions will depend on the country um in america i think it's um a field of view of 20 degrees so if you imagine putting your hands out in front of you um it would probably be you know four hands width across so that would be you would have a tunnel vision of about four hands width across Or an acuity of 2200, um, and 2200 essentially means you can read really, you know, if you put really big font on a computer, you can read it. And that would be the definition of blindness. So it doesn't mean you're living in a world that's, you know, black. Yeah. Um, and low vision is sort of usually defined as a sort of vision that means you should not be driving, though many people yeah. do. Um what we're interested in our lab is something more severe than that. It's called light perception um, vision, which means that you can tell if a room is lights in a room are on or off, but you can't tell any more than that. But the legal definitions of blindness tend to be much more lax um, because they're really what it's about is things like social security benefits and things like that. And it's basically saying, you know, are you so blind that significant accommodations are going to have to be made? Um, and that, that's a much more, you know, lenient criterion than for me, where I'm trying to say what happens to your brain when you don't use visual information at all. Yeah. So um, no light perception means uh, an individual cannot tell 
Yeah, whether the lights are on or off in a room. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so if, um, if somebody was not blind, if we close our eyes, uh, could we still, I haven't tested this on myself. <laughs> could we still, <laughs> could we still so, lights off? So, yeah, yeah. So you can, right? Everybody has that experience of lying in their back on a sunny day and yeah. their eyelids are all red. It's that sort of lovely summer feeling that we're all looking forward to. So, yeah, if you, with your eyes closed, you have what's considered low light perception. Okay. And again, that would mean that you could probably look around in a room and you could, if there was a bright light in a dark room, you could spot where the light was. Um, so that would be considered light perception. So light perception only is really your vision with your eyes closed. Um, no light perception really means that there is no visual information reaching your brain whatsoever. Yeah. What we know from people with light perception is they'll, they'll use that vision a little bit for orienting. So they'll use it, for example, to know that, okay, it's bright on this side, and that must mean that the window's there, which means the door's on the other side, but they can't use it for much more than that. And we still seem to see the amazing kind of plasticity that we see. You know, that, that we, we classify that with no light perception. It's quite difficult finding blind individuals, so it would be really interesting to see if there's a difference between those groups, but we just, nobody has those kind of subject numbers where we can do that. Yeah. And so mechanistically, is it correct to think about um, you have the eyes, it's going, to, it's going to collect photons, it's going to have some sensation. It has to then convert those sensations into some sort of a signal, send it to the brain. Uh, and there's some computation in the brain to, to essentially create the perception of something, right? Is that how it works? Yeah, exactly. So it's actually, since you come from computer science, um, essentially it collects information from about 100 million sensors. Those are your rods and cones. That signal is then compressed to um, about a million channels that go to the brain. So it's an amazing example of image compression that actually inspires um, the kinds of image compression algorithms that we use in computer science. They're actually based on the, the human eye. And one of the reasons they're based on the human eye is we want to fool the human eye. So information that the human eye throws away, you can throw away in your images. There's no cost. Yeah, he's not going to notice it anyway. It doesn't care. So that million channels goes to the brain and the brain is essentially carrying out, you know, an incredibly complicated set of computations that's designed to recognize a chair, a dog and your grandmother. And I think one way to getting across like how amazing these computations are is, you know, we developed computers, and I think it was in 1980 that a computer beat a human in chess. When was Casper? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, it was 1980s, right? And we think of chess as something that's really, really hard. Like, I can barely play chess at all. Um, but chess, we think of something that you have to be really clever to do. And it took till the 1980s for a computer to beat a human. Google is still working on computer algorithms that can recognize a dog, a cat, a person, a telephone, as well as a human can, right? They're almost there, but they still make some, you know, if you look at how their um, image recognition algorithms work, they sometimes make terrible, stupid mistakes that a human would never make. <laughs> and so you think about it, then you think of, like how far we've gone in computer science since 1980 where we where it defeated a computer a human at chess and we still 
can't do the computations that the human visual system does for something that we think is totally easy. Like none of us think recognizing a coffee cup or a dog, telling the difference between a dog or a cat or recognizing our Uncle Joe. We don't think of these as difficult tasks. Yeah. But 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 Bill Gates still can't do it. It's human brain <laughs> is still the best. And that gives us an example of like why so much of our brain is taken up with it and why this is, you know, an interesting problem that's kept me busy for 30 years. Yeah. And so a million channels of information going to the brain, um, it's a pretty complex computational task. Do we sense any sort of latency? Uh, in other words, you know, information going in and the, and the brain's awareness that there is a, there is a chair in front of you. Do we, do, do we have any sort of measurement of that uh, lag or latency? It's about 120 milliseconds. Um, so it's about 40 milliseconds per neuron. Yeah. And so you have uh, like maybe 200 milliseconds. So you've got kind of, it takes about 100 milliseconds, 60 milliseconds to get out of the retina. Yeah. Um, and then it's about, usually to do something like recognize a face, it would be another 100 milliseconds. So it's about 200 milliseconds. So it, it's pretty laggy. Um, we just don't notice it because we always have that lag. And so we, we, um, what's interesting is, is that our auditory system is much faster. So we actually, that's why we will startle sometimes at an auditory noise sooner than we will with visual stimulus. Yeah. Um, because the auditory system actually, it, it, it really rips along. Yeah, so is there some sort of an evolutionary um, basis there, Yone? Why, why, why was the, I guess there's a question of complexity. So the information in the visual system is a lot more, uh, and probably a lot more complex to process with the same hardware. Um, is, that, is that the only reason that um, the auditory lag is a lot, lot smaller? Uh, no, it's that sound waves so if you think about it, um, the highest pitch we can hear is about 20 hertz. So it's 20,000 cycles per second. So if you're having to track a signal that's going, that's changing in time that quickly, you just have to have a system that has exquisite timing information and it's very quick. So it, 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 it's really a specialized adaptation. Most of the visual system, most of the brain is about as slow as the visual system or slower. Neurons are just not that fast. You know, the system is massively parallel. It's not massively quick. Um, the auditory system has been specialized to go really fast. Um, and that has like, there's interesting things about that. That actually has an energetic cost. So the auditory system, um, even things like the blood flow system to the auditory system happens faster. So the whole system is just kind of turned to like, well, like, it's like listening to your podcast at twice the speed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that, that system's just got different timing from the rest. It's, it's just, and that's amazing that the brains have this ability. They have this sort of basic hardware that most of the system uses. But if you need a system that's really fast, like audition, it can kind of, it can build it. Um, I don't know anything about this, but it, it seems to me that it, it should have had some survival benefit. So uh, perhaps the vision is more of a strategic strategic system. So the, the, you know, the latency or the lag that we see 
uh, does not really affect us from a survival perspective. You know, if the lion is uh, on your face, you're gone anyway. It doesn't really, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Um, whereas the auditory system might be more tactical and may have had some survival benefits perhaps. It might be that. I think it really is, is that auditory stimuli, a sound wave is very fast in time. Yeah. So here's another example. So we can hear up to 20,000 hertz, okay? We, a monitor refresh, the flickering of a monitor, we can detect it up to 100 hertz. So yeah. it's a huge difference in our ability to understand te process temporal information. Right, after 100 hertz, we have no idea whether monitor is a 120 hertz monitor or a 200 hertz monitor, right? It just the system can't cope. And some of that is just simply, again, hardware the photons that collect light, the photoreceptors, that system is quite slow. So that system itself limits our sensitivity to really high frequencies, whereas um, the the movement of the, um, the ossicles of the ear and the kind of shaking of the, um, the cochlea, that can happen much, much faster. So it's just physical, the way the physical receptors are designed. Right, right. Uh, so, so you talk about different uh, stages of blindness development, uh, congenital blindness, uh, somebody's born blind, early blindness, you say it's uh, individuals um, below the age of 16 and late blindness uh, above the age of 16. And, and so these three groups of people, um, they're very different, aren't they, in terms of how they adapt to this issue? We certainly know that late blind individuals are very different. That they almost never, when we look at the kind of this third of the brain or this 25% of the brain that normally responds to visual information, in early blind people, those parts of the brain start responding to audition and touch. So they, 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 that, those parts of the brain show just very different neural responses than in normally sighted people. In late blind people, there are some differences, but they're very subtle. They're hard to find. It's nothing like an early blind person. What we're not sure is that that difference between, you know, the first couple of years in life where these changes happen, and 16 or 17, where after that the changes don't seem to happen. In the middle, there's these teenage years. And what's really curious is that it seems like this kind of what we call the critical period, the period where you change from being this very plastic brain to this very non-plastic brain. Yeah. We originally assumed it would be in the first couple of years of life because by the time a child is three, their visual system is pretty much like an adult. So by the time a child is three, they can recognize a chair and a table and a cup and letters. And they only sometimes make mistakes. Like three-year-olds will be on a bus. And especially in Seattle, they'll go point at somebody and they'll say, is that a mommy or a daddy? Because it's a guy <laughs> with long hair and an earrings. And it's like the kid just can't process. <laughs> like, it's a, is that a, they always say it really loudly. Um, that's, that's the rule. Um, so that except for very difficult things like recognizing the gender of a face when you know the cues that we associate with those face genders are different um three-year-olds have it down they really don't have a problem so we thought that this would was all going to happen before people were three but it looks like even people who become blind at eight or nine might still show this kind of amazing plasticity um we don't have very many cases of that very few kids become blind at eight or nine 
but the cases we do have, we do see this plasticity. Yeah, so 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 we know that brain plasticity declines with age. Uh, do we know, is there a distinct difference between somebody who is losing, uh, losing the ability to see gradually as opposed to suddenly, you know, like an accident or something? Do, do we know the, if, uh, how, they, how the brain does things in, in these two situations? That's a really interesting question. It's, we know there are differences. We don't know how that relates to plasticity. So one of the most interesting differences, this is fascinating, is um, that people who lose vision suddenly start having visual hallucinations. Um, I can't remember the name of it. Um, and so they'll have these very, very distinct, they'll still see things. They'll see faces and swirly. It kind of looks like modern art when they describe it. And until, until kind of people kind of, and actually, if you take a normally sighted person, you put them in dark for five days, they start having these visual hallucinations as well. But until we knew that, um, people who are blind were often diagnosed with schizophrenia, because if you start seeing crazy faces and you're blind, right, it's got to be schizophrenia, right? That's the only, and it, I think what we now think is happening is the visual system is so confused by not getting normal input that it just starts kind of generating its making it up mm. um but but until i would say 40 or years ago anyone who became blind suddenly people probably thought they went crazy at the same time because these hallucinations are very very common um i think they fade after a while but again we don't but i'm not sure about that yeah i mean it's really interesting so uh the brain has some expectations of visual signals coming in and for whatever reasons it's not receiving them um it, it <laughs> the computations are going on it could it could start making up things it does yeah um so you can actually create um google's created algorithms that work very much the same way i think they're called deep dreams um, and you can present noise and it will start, you know, if you train a dream on cats, you'll start getting this crazy cat world. And it's thought that it's actually kind of a very similar process that that there's kind of neuronal noise because there's always neuronal noise. And the brain just tries to interpret this neuronal noise and it does it based on kind of what it's seen before in the world. And so you start hallucinating, you know, faces and cats. Yeah, we, we know that uh, when when somebody is blind, the other senses like auditory and uh, tactile senses are much more, uh, much more sensitive, right? Is that true? Not quite. So no. what, almost. Um, it's not that you get better at hearing. So it's not like mm -hmm. you can hear a pin drop on a cushion, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you get better at is interpreting the information. There's two things you get better at. One is interpreting the information that you have. So you get better at recognizing, oh, that's my cell phone as opposed to my husband's cell phone. That might be a sound that you wouldn't normally be able to tell the difference between, but you might learn it if you're blind because it, you know, it's going to be a real hassle going and finding this phone and you're not going to bother if it's your husband's. Right, right. Um, so you get better at interpreting what you hear. And we have some recent data in our lab. It's not published, um, but it's looking pretty solid, I would say, that suggests that this internal noise that you have 
for audition might be reduced in some way that somehow um, may, and we don't know how you could reduce the internal noise, but what, what we see evidence is, is in these tasks, participants sort of maybe are, they can't hear it's their thresholds don't change, but their ability to detect a signal in the clutter of the world gets better. That's a, that's a better way to describe it. So normally what we're always doing is picking out signals amid clutter. We're almost never trying to hear something in a perfectly silent room, right? We're always trying to hear something and there's an air conditioner and there's a child in the background and your computer is humming and your fan is humming. And then you're, and that's where blind people, I think, do much better. Picking mm -hmm. out, picking out important noises among the clutter of life. Yeah. So, so by internal noise, you mean sort of the errors. And so, um, you know, from from my naive perspective, I can see, you know, from from brain, there is a goal that it's a goal directed um, processing. Uh, you don't have vision, you have to still get to the goal. So, so, so you, you can probably um, deploy perhaps more of your brain to really focus on that problem. Is that is that the way to think about it? Yeah, so I would say for about 20 years, and I wouldn't say I'm totally convinced by this theory, but the, the standard theory that we're all working from, and it's certainly the best theory we have out there, is there's like there's a part of the brain, let's say, that does vision, that does motion. So it's it basically it's there to recognize moving objects. Okay, so and the idea is, is that in blind individuals, Okay, you can't normally the way we track moving objects is we look at them and we see that they're moving and then we can see how fast they're going and where they're going and whether they're going to eat us or whether <laughs> we can eat them. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's really what it's all about yeah. for somebody. But if you're blind, then you're going to have to track that moving object with your hearing. And so and what we find is that in blind people, when they track moving objects, that area that normally only responds to visual motion starts responding to audition. So the idea is, is maybe this isn't really for blind people. It does it's not a vision motion area, but it's an audition motion area. Mm. The same is true. We have a big chunk of the brain that normally recognizes faces. Faces are really important to us. Um, yeah. And in blind people, that region seems to respond to voices. So the idea is, is that these regions are still doing the same function. They're recognizing individuals, they're tracking moving objects, they're just using a different sense to do it. Right, right. And and are they are they doing this with the same part of the brain or this is happening elsewhere? It's they seem to be actually it seems to be the same part of the brain. Um, yeah. it's, um another nice one is we have a part of the brain that's responsible for reading. In fact, people with dyslexia, that brain part brain part tends to be pretty small. Um, and blind people, that that region of the brain lights up for Braille. Um, so it looks like, yeah, the, these regions of the brain um, get essentially taken over by audition, but they're still performing the same functional role. So um, we defined it years ago. We called it functional constancy. That was kind of a yeah. term that one of my postdocs came up with, which I really like. You're still... <laughs> Um, the, the, the original term for it was metamodal 
metal modal metal modal brain areas and i just never understood what metamodal was whereas i could understand what functional constancy was so it was simpler for yeah. me yeah it, it's really fascinating this is why i think computer scientists have no clue uh as to how the brain is working because when we think about generalization, we are thinking about generalization within very, very narrow regimes. Um, whereas the brain has a level of generalization that is beyond, you know, any of the, someone from a computer science perspective, anything that, that we can think about. It's true. Actually, one of the funniest experiences I had was as a postdoc, I was invited to give a talk to DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which, of course, is very computer science oriented. And the first problem was, is they hadn't realized I wasn't an American. So I was meant to be giving a talk and they suddenly have to phone the British embassy at three in the morning to find out whether or not I'm a security risk. Luckily, they decided I wasn't. And despite a bit of a left wing past. And so I was let in. I, I, I've done my share of demonstrations and yeah. I went in and I'm giving this talk on this guy who's blind and got his sight back. And what was interesting about him is certain things like motion processing, he was really, really good at. And some things like face processing, he was rubbish at. And I basically kind of characterized what were the things he was good at and what were the things he was bad at. <laughs> and I gave this talk to DARPA and I'm like, why are they interested in this blind guy? This makes no sense. And then they asked a bunch of questions and I was like, these questions, they make no sense. <laughs> and I kept saying, well, if you could explain why you're interested in these questions, I could give you better answers. And they're like, no, just answer the questions. Just answer the questions. Like, okay. And I finish it and about it just completely mysterious. And about a year later, their article comes out about the fact they have these little spy bots, these little fly spy bots that are kind of cruising around and they're trying to like spot Osama bin Laden. Yeah. And they're kind of just, you know, these little spy bots are, you know, I know they're probably everywhere. But, um, and what was all, and I realized that the problem they were having is that these little spy bots were great at cruising around and avoiding obstacles, which Mike, this guy who recovered his sight was good at. But they were terrible at recognizing faces, especially with things like sunglasses or hats or, you know, a wig, which Mike was also terrible at. And so they basically, someone had read this paper on Mike and thought, this guy is just like our flies. <laughs> we need to go and get this researcher and find out like why she thinks there's this difference because we need our flies to recognize faces. And essentially, <laughs> it was very mysterious. <laughs> and, you know, and essentially the big difference was is things like recognizing objects and faces does require plasticity. It requires an adaptable system Whereas the physics of motion and the physical 3D structures of objects, that's a very kind of, that's really Newtonian physics. It doesn't change. Right. right. Yeah. 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 So we'll take a quick break. Uh, I come back. Uh, we'll talk about the neuroanatomy and how the brain actually changes um, when you go blind. Okay, dokie. All right. So I leave recording now. Yeah. Okay. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.
So we're back. Uh, you know, we were talking about blindness and how the brain adapts to uh, blindness and, it, you know, it could happen in different stages, early blindness, late blindness. Um, and part of the paper is talking about, you say here, the effects of early blindness can be seen across multiple neuroanatomical scales from molecules to function. So early blindness here is something that has happened less than the age of 16, right? Yeah, I would say there I'm talking about kind of less than the age of two. Yeah. Oh, less age of two. Okay. Yeah. And so, so, so what do we see? Uh, we see some distinct differences in the brain. Uh, so what are the differences that we see? Um, so one thing we see in animals is that if you stick an electrode in the back of the head, um, it's not silent back there. It's, yeah. it's much noisier than it is in a normal brain. So normal brain, neurons only fire when they're signaling a piece of information. So, you know, most neurons you, you stick an electrode in, they'll just sit there, pop, 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 pop. Mm. And only when the kind of the object in the world that they're interested in sh appears in their viewpoint, then they'll suddenly go, pop, 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 pop. But if you mm. stick an electrode in a blind person, it's pop, 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 pop. It's much noisier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what we, we know that there's probably a decrease in the amount of GABA, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, and that's probably causing that noisiness. And the way to think about GABA is GABA and acetylcholine are like the accelerator and the brake. Yeah. So GABA kind of makes neurons fire less, acetylcholine and nicotine, they make neurons fire more. So that's why when you're feeling sluggish, you have a coffee or you have a cigarette in the old days, um, because that actually makes you basically it perks up your neurons and gets it gets them firing. You know, these, these things are real. Um, and so blind subjects have reduced GABA, which is sort of like having so that there's less break and more accelerators. So that's why these cells are firing a bit more. And we think that that's a kind of response to the system because it's not getting the normal input it's getting. Um, it's sort of like, I use the metaphor of driving in the desert, right? You'll drive in the desert and the radio station will get quieter and quieter. And so you'll turn the volume up and you'll turn the volume up, but it, it starts getting really crackly. Yeah. After a certain point, you don't have any signal anymore. All you have is a crackle. And that's kind of what we see in the brains of blind individuals as we see this kind of big crackling going on. Um, and what we also see is that that part of the brain now does start responding to things like auditory stimuli and um, touch. Yeah, so it was like some sort of You know, there's two hypotheses out there. Yeah. The standard hypothesis that everybody else in the world believes is that there's like fundamental rewiring, that there's changes in what the neurons are connected to. Yeah. I, I actually think it might be something different and way weirder that's going on, which is like, I have a PC and if yeah, I yeah. suddenly, and it's running Windows 10, and if I suddenly went insane and decided I wanted to reinstall, I wanted to install Ubuntu on my computer. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, Ubuntu lovers. <laughs> now you're going to totally, totally get trolled. If I decided I wanted an yeah. Ubuntu, I could just take my computer down and install Ubuntu. 
I haven't made any physical hardware changes to my computer, but my computer is essentially going to process the world in a completely different way. Yeah. Um, without a physical change in hardware. And I think a surprising amount of plasticity might be kind of like Ubuntu. It's the same. And that's why we thought that this cortical plasticity had to happen before one or two or three years of age, because we knew that that's when the kind of hardware was getting put into place. Like after that, you really don't get new neurons or, you know, new connections to entirely new places. You know, really, most of that stuff is set up before birth, right? So it was always a bit of like, how, how can we have this? So this other idea that you're basically just putting an Ubuntu system on, on a computer, but the hardware hasn't really changed that much, there's kind of some evidence to think that that's, you know, that I'm not completely crazy in thinking that. Do, do you, um, I don't know if it's the right analog. Uh, so there is sort of a difference between operating system, you know, something the brain comes with expectations when we are born um, and experiences, sort of apps that we put on top of that operating system. Uh, in the case of early blindness, uh, this this analogs my work, but in the case of early blindness, it appears to me that you know the brain is sitting there expecting something, it never gets it, and then it has to get up and say, "Well, you know, I now have to do things differently." Yeah, and so. And so, yeah, I think the difference between the brain and a computer is we have this distinction between an operating system and apps. And again, that distinction is a little bit fuzzy, even in a computer. But in a, in, a, in, a, in a brain, there isn't an operating system and apps. There is yeah. software yeah. and there's hardware. Yeah. Um, and I yeah, basically, and to be fair, the hardware is designed to run a particular kind of software. Right, the visual system is very much designed to do vision. The auditory system is very much designed to do audition. The inputs and outputs to those areas are designed for certain tasks, but it is capable of running different software if it has to. Yeah. Uh, the other area you talk about here is the metabolic pathways, the differences that we see. This is really, really fascinating. I mean, these are truly measurable things. Um, and we see significant difference in there too, right? Mm -hmm. So this was first some early PET studies. So basically, remember I said that when you go into the um, the um, the desert, you have to turn the volume up and you get this crackle and these neurons yeah. fire a lot. What you also see in the brains of blind individuals is that they basically kind of have a hyped up metabolic system. So in fact... If you think about the results from the PET scans, and we've done some neurochemical scans at UW, the back of the brain is kind of almost like it is in a tumor, where you've got this really high, you know, often the way you detect tumors is you're looking for areas that have this really high energy because these cells are dividing like crazy. Yeah. In the case of blind people, these cells aren't dividing like crazy, but they're, they're using up um, oxygen they're firing more than they should. And that's coming at this high energetic cost and the system is kind of compensating for that. Um, and we don't have a clear idea of why that's happening. Um, again, the, the crackle on the radio, it might just be um, a dysfunction in the system. 
um, but it, it, but it, it, but it's very noticeable. These are not yeah. small effects. And again, so, that yeah. No, no, go ahead. That's it. You know, so yeah, so it could be a dysfunction. It could be just a confusion. You say here. One possibility is that these increased metabolic demands are due to the increased resting state firing. Um, essentially, it's a system that is in some sense in confusion, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is the idea of going into the, you know, if you go into the, if you go into the desert and you turn up the radio, you're going to get a crackle and the noise. And, you know, you'll find that the radio is really loud, right? If you want to understand, get the radio show, it, you're going to have to have it on really loud. And when you have something on really loud, a lot of crackle, a lot of sound, that, that, that. Every time you, every time a neuron spikes, there's a little cost, you know, it yeah. uses up a little bit of energy. And so if that system is just in this really high energetic state, that, that, that's kind of an explanation for why that. The other possibility is that you remember I said that there was lower levels of GABA and possibly higher levels of acetylcholine. So this balance between the, the brakes and the accelerator are different. Those chemicals themselves act on the vascular system. So GABA essentially, because they're kind of, your, your vascular system is, it's like, um, it's like gas stations. You're trying to predict demand. You're, you're, you're getting the blood uses, the brain uses up a lot of blood. And there's actually a really clever, you think of the brain just, you know, blood just sloshing around. But in fact, the brain is constantly controlling how much blood is going to different parts of the brain to meet the neuronal demands. It's a very sophisticated system. It's, and um, it's very much like we, we have a sense of it now, you know, with the Southwest and this pipeline, that if there's a disruption or one area, suddenly everybody decides they want to, you know, get out of the way of a hurricane, there's, you've got to rush those tankers over to the area and fill the um, gas stations or people are going to run out of gas. So it's this very dynamic, the blood supply um, in fact, I'm, I'm reading a coal paper by a student, and she's basically arguing, like, it doesn't matter if we're measuring neurons or blood. It's kind of the same thing. We should just treat them as the same, right? It's all just part of the system responding to the world. And the first time I read it, I was like, this is insane. And then I thought, you know, she might. I don't think she's right, but it's it's a reasonable point. Yeah. So, so will we see a, a measurable difference in a blind person's, early blind person's brain in terms of the energy budget? Uh, we have, for a normal human, we have some expectation, right? I don't know what the number is, 20 or 25%. Would we see the energy budget uh, consumed in the brain a lot higher than that? Yeah, it's quite a lot higher. I think it's something like, I can't remember the exact amount, but it's about 10% higher. It, mm -hmm. it really is significant. And you remember I said that, you know, the more cells fire, the kind of the more budget is. So the auditory cortex, for example, also uses up a lot of energy. It's a high, so different parts of the brain use up different amounts of energy, depending on kind of how fast they have to fire or what the firing rates of the neurons are. So, for example, in the visual system, the max firing rate is probably about 200 spikes a second. Hmm. In the auditory system, it might be 30,000 spikes in a second. So that just costs a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, the 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 brain the brain the hardware differs in quite dramatic <laughs> ways, and you know the amount of it, you know the electricity supply is very dynamic. It, it, it's an it's an amazing system. 
Yeah, I mean, but what amazing about it is that it can understand something is wrong. It can essentially rewire itself uh, to be reasonably effective given the given the new regime, right? That is that mm-hmm. is really what's amazing about it. So all the all the rewire all the restructuring, rewiring, relearning stuff takes a lot of energy. Yeah. And, 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 you know, if you're doing tasks that require more energy, yeah, your, your blood supply modifies itself to, to adapt to that. You, you talk about uh, also here cortical expansion. You say early blindness results in a reduction in cortical folding and an increase in cortical thickness. Uh, so, so what are the implications of that? Ah, so... Babies have these little kind of, you know, we all know what a brain looks like. It's very wrinkly. Babies have much less wrinkly skulls. Their brains are kind of, they're kind of flat. (laughs) (laughs) They look kind of like a hamster. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, any babies who are listening to this podcast. (laughs) You'll get wrinklier when you, as long as you keep listening. Um, You you will grow up at some point. You will grow up. As long as you keep listening to this podcast, you'll get nice and wrinkly. (laughs) Um... There you go. Plug to your listeners. So babies are really flat. And basically what happens is as kind of very early in development, the first year of life, you get more and more neurons in cortex. And it's just like you're trying to fit all this in the skull. And so the way it fits is by essentially wrinkling. Those wrinkles are essentially caused by this cortical sheet being really big and having to be squished into a, a fixed size skull which of course is, you know, the skull is just big enough that every mother has a slight dislike of their children after birth. Um, so, so that wrinkliness is basically how much cortex you have. Now, if you have an area in visual cortex that isn't getting its normal input, and so the cells aren't dividing and replicating at the same kind of um, rate as it are in other parts of the brain, that part of the brain will stay kind of smooth. And that's what we see in blind people. The increased cortical thickness, there are two hypotheses about that. And again, um, there's what everybody else thinks and there's what I think. Everybody else thinks that this is due to this fact that about between the about age of one and three, babies have had too many neurons as one. It's like they grow tons of neurons and then they work out which ones they actually need. And again, because, you know, maintaining neurons are expensive. So if you create a lot of neurons you don't need, you might as well get rid of them. So most people think it's a lack of pruning. I actually think it's a measurement error, um, the way we measure cortical thickness. Um, That this is very technical. There's usually a white matter connection into the middle of the gray matter. And I think that the fact that blind people don't have that white matter connection because there isn't much input from the it's too boring for it. I think it's a measurement error. Let's leave it at that. People can troll me about it later. But mother people think it's lack of pruning. Yes, you yeah. see, uh, the other hypothesis is uh, lack of experience depending on cortical proof after birth. So, so one thing, you know, you know, this is why I'm not going to like, just one um, you're so, You're cutting in and out. I am, okay. Oh, no, you seem to be better now. Yeah, I, I get the feedback a little bit. Okay, so let me... No, I think you're good now. Okay, so, um, you know, what I was thinking about is 
there's a lack of experience, obviously. It's, uh, you know, a blind person's, early blind person's brain is not getting the stimulus that a typical brain will get. And so from a sort of a development perspective, the pruning is not what we expected to see. Uh, and so have there been any experiments, uh, you know, that, you know, suppose you overstimulate a blind, early blind person's brain with auditory stimulus and all sorts of music and all sorts of things, would we see any kind of difference? That's a great question. Um, yeah, obviously you can't do that with children. <laughs> I was so hoping for twins so I could raise one in a crib with vertical stripes and the other in a crib with horizontal stripes. Um, but, um, but they have done this with rats. It's a fascinating experiment. So they had basically three sets of rats. One set of rats were normal sighted rats were in normal cages. So the normal standard rat cage is a really boring cage. They live on their own. They have some sawdust, they have a food bowl, they have a water bowl, maybe. I, I don't know, these rats I don't think had a running wheel. They usually have a running wheel. Yeah. Then they had two sets of blind rats. One set of blind rats were in the same cage as the sighted, so boring, boring cage. The other set of blind rats were in this really complicated cage with tunnels and they had a part, you know, another rat in there with them and every day they would hide the food so the rat had to go find his own food and they had these toys in there that they changed every day so this was you know a really interesting rat life mm. especially for you know a rat in a cage and what they found is that the blind animals in the normal cage there are these things cells called astrocytes and astrocytes don't do calculations but astrocytes support the neurons that do calculations they're basically called the helper cells and so they're kind of a good measure of how much the brain is kind of developing a complicated neuronal structure as you can actually measure these astrocytes. So the sighted animals had a certain number of astrocytes. The blind animals in the boring cages had far fewer astrocytes than the, the sighted animals. So it's like they didn't have to develop complicated brains. They're blind. They're not getting visual information. They know where their food bowl is. And they have these boring brains with no astrocytes in them, hardly any astrocytes. The blind animals that were in the crazy funfair cages where they're having to find their food and their water bowl is being moved and there's, you know, there are new toys in there and they're putting tunnels in there and they're constantly having to adapt to this environment. They had more astrocytes in the sighted animals because, and I think they had more astrocytes even in the sighted animals in complicated cages. It's like, because they're solving these really difficult problems, right? How do I make my way around this complicated world when I'm blind? Yeah, they yeah. developed these really, you know, they, they obviously had kind of put a lot of brain energy or brain structure. They had these astrocytes, which are kind of measure of sort of kind of brain, brainy, braininess, braininess. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> so they were particularly brainy. Um, and I, it's a really, I think that's a beautiful I think it's a really informative study because I think sometimes when we have children who have sensory loss, yeah. we try to simplify their lives and make things easy for them. Right, right. Um, whereas, in fact, you know, maybe we shouldn't be moving their food bowl and hiding their food in the carpet, right? That might be a little cruel. But, you know, the idea that it's really important, it's even more important if you have a child with sensory loss to enrich their environment, to make sure they have an interesting you know, education and things to do. I think for blind children, 
Um, I think that, that 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 is the really important take home message from that. That you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if you have seen this paper. I think there was a recent paper that showed that domesticated animals um, have you know the the brain is shrinking. So if you look at it longitudinally. Uh, their brain continues to shrink. They're getting dumber and dumber. <laughs> <laughs> that would explain my dog. <laughs> <laughs> because there are no challenges, right? All their needs are met. They're not in the wild. There are no threats. There are no problems to solve. Um, and and I think, uh, you know, that's sort of symptomatic of what's happening there, I think. Yeah, what is interesting, there's a researcher who's very interested in this, is how often what happens on an evolutionary time scale, yeah. right, that, you know, if you're a domestic sheep, it doesn't really matter if you're a bit dim compared to the other sheep, you're still, you know, there are no wolves, so you still get to reproduce, and so your 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 baby sheep are even thicker than that, and it goes on and on and on. Yeah. Um, there's a difference those changes often are kind of surprisingly similar to changes that are environmental, right? We, we know that when we, in the 1950s, it was the case that children who grew up in the country, which was much simpler, um, tended to have kind of lower IQs than children who grew up in the cities that were much more complicated. Um, and again, things are different now and everybody's watching YouTube, so our children probably all have brains the size of walnuts. Yeah. Especially out, especially after COVID, <laughs> but um, yeah, smooth yeah, that, walnuts. That, that, they're, they're probably like almonds. You know, they should be like walnuts, but instead they're all going to have brains like almonds. <laughs> yeah, it will be interesting to see if there is a you know aggregate IQ drop in the population. You know, after after COVID settles, um, yeah. because sitting at home and watching Netflix might not be or YouTube might not be the best way to best way to spend time. It's 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 funny. I think what you do do is you have a brain that specializes for what you're doing. So for example, um, kids who play a lot of um, shooter first person shooter games strangely enough do extremely well on fighting use flying military aircraft and um, shooting in the military. <laughs> Can't think why, but they, they, the military basically have seen a huge improvement in these kids' abilities to do these things because that's what they've trained on. And, you know, these flight simulators that they've trained on from the age of 11 are remarkably similar to, you know, flying a million-dollar plane. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they got better at what they were training at doing, which is not entirely surprising. Of course, then if you're trying to make them write an essay on Napoleon, Things might not go so well for you. <laughs> yes, and so, so I want to finish up our discussion with, uh, with meta model plasticity. I know that you you prefer functional constancy, um, but this is this is you know truly fascinating about the brain. We have nothing uh, nothing in the technology arena that comes anywhere close to this. So, so what exactly do you mean by meta model plasticity or functional constancy? So the idea of metamodal, so the, and you know, the, the two terms are really, really similar, but I think from the point of view of someone who's interested in technology, you might be interested in the distinction between them. So the idea of metamodal plasticity or the, the brain is metamodal. So basically Alvaro Pascal Leone and Amir Mehdi um, back in 2001 
said, well, maybe what we thought of as visual areas, like this face processing area that processes visual faces, this motion processing area that processes, you know, visual motion, and this reading area that processes visual letters, maybe they're not really visual areas at all. Maybe they're trying to solve this task and they'll just take whatever input is best for the task. And in sight of people, that's usually vision. Yeah. And so that that's the idea behind. And so the kind of fundamental experiment that was designed to test that was they um, sighted people in the dark for five days and had them learn Braille. And they tried to see whether the um, reading area would start lighting up for Braille. The functional constancy argument is that it's not that these areas don't care. They are designed for vision, but if they can't get the vision, and that happens early enough in life, then they will use another input. So the idea is, is that metamodal is like, it really doesn't care. It just happens that vision is the best input. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the functional constancy is it does care, but if it has to change, it will keep its function. Um, and that, that's and and so you know I I I and I'm you know I I probably am I have some of the earliest data for functional constancy. I'm starting to worry that even that's not correct. But that's just that's just being a scientist. We spend our whole lives realizing we're wrong. Yeah. So that that is really interesting. So uh, let, let me see if I understand this, uh, Yone. So if I abstract this set of inputs, a computational task and an output. The output is a function. The output is the, the goal or the result. Mm -hmm. the, the computation remains. So what you're saying is that, yes, we, they designed that way for vision, for hearing, and, and so on. But suppose the inputs are changed. It can rewire itself from a computational task. Well, computation could still be the same. It can still produce a function that is similar to the original original design, even if the inputs are changed somewhere. Yeah, so if you think about speed, speed is x, you know, time at x1, you know, place at x1 minus place at x2 divided by the time between yeah. it landing in x1 and x2. The computation is, is, is amodal. Right. Right, once you've abstracted things to, you know, place one and place two, doesn't matter what your input is. So a lot of this is the question of to what extent are these computations amodal. In the case of speed and motion processing, it you can kind of get a sense of how it's amodal when it comes to things like letters and words and braille. I think again, we can have a pretty the idea that you know a braille a and a visual A, it's pretty easy to make that mapping. And after that, the computations of reading are pretty identical. I think face recognition, that's a little harder. Like voice, voices and faces are kind of very, very different. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, but the idea is to what maybe many of the computations of these areas um, are amodal. Yeah, so more generally, Yone, would you agree that the reason we are here, the modern human uh, sitting in front of our computers doing stuff that the brain has never been designed to do any of that 50,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago. Uh, the reason we are here could do the all, all sorts of this weird stuff is because we have this organ that appears to be highly generalizable 
and uh, doesn't you know it, it's not fixed in any 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 way <laughs> in some way <laughs> and it can you know just give it different inputs it can still produce things that are interesting yeah it 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 so what's what's amazing about the brain is it it combines specificity with flexibility yeah so we we definitely like you know it's not like we're born like blobs of goo right it's we, in 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 a normal person with normal vision the back of the head always does vision you know auditory cortex is always in the same place and so on and so forth what is amazing is that and so we have these areas that play distinct functional roles what's amazing about these areas is that they we can grow new modules that are specified for particular areas and we can do that without evolution and this was a point and I'm blanking on the name so this was this point about the reading area so um most if you go to a tribe that doesn't have reading so pre kind of non-literate tribes they have two face areas on either side that are roughly the same size okay yeah if you look at people in literate societies the uh let me just give me the right side of the brain has a really big face area the left side of the brain has a much smaller face area and right next to it is a reading area it's an area that is focused on reading now Reading, we haven't had time to evolutionarily develop a reading area. Reading has only been around for, you know, for most people, less than 2,000 years. Like, very few members of the human race were literate before 2,000 years ago. So evolution doesn't work on that time scale. So it's fascinating that every, almost every human who isn't severely dyslexic in a literate society has this reading area, even though it can't have been, happened evolutionarily. But yes. it's always in the same place. And so his theory is, okay, reading is a bit like faces. You have to recognize this fine detail. You have to see the form. You have to recognize lots of different objects. So basically what the visual system, what the brain has done is said, okay, I have to solve this new task, reading. Yeah. Where is a bit of the brain that is well-designed for this task? Ah, this is a good bit. This bit has all the properties I need for reading. And I'm going to put it in the left hemisphere because it's reading, so it has to do with language. And that right hemisphere can do, you know, do what it was before, doing before, which is the face processing. And so basically, even though there's, you know, it's, it's completely makes no sense that we would have a reading area. There's no way it could have designed evolution. So that's the theory. The other area we have is we have a numerosity area. We have an area for counting a number. And again, this is something that, or math, right? We have areas that respond to math. So it seems like we, we the brain isn't goo, but we have areas that are kind of crudely designed to be specialized, but there's lots of flexibility within that crude design. Mm. So so the foundational skill could be, uh, you know, I don't know anything about it, I'm just speculating. The foundational skill could be pattern recognition. And it was, earlier specialization was for face recognition that was so critical. And that pattern recognition aspect of the brain is now utilized in many ways, uh, including reading. I, I would argue, I would say that those parts of the brain are designed for pattern recognition. 
But those specific parts, I would think of it as, as we think of the brain as a computer and we think of it as all being the same. And I would say that what we should think of the brain as being as being a bunch of collections of different kinds of hardware. Some are really, really parallel and slow. Some are really serial and fast. Some are, you know, set up with, you know, those, what are those complicated chips that have multi, uh, I got obsessed with them for a while. Come on, what are they called? They do multiple processes in a single chip, right? Multi, yeah. you know, multi-stage chips. Some are like designed like that. Some are really simple. We have all sorts of different hardware in our brain. And then the brain basically in development says, okay, which part of this complicated different kinds of hardware are going to be best at these tasks. And some of that is going to be the hardware and some of it's going to be which bits are connected to which bits. Remember, the information doesn't flow equally from every part of the brain to every part of other part of the brain. There's a real structure in the hierarchy, structure to how brains are wired. Yeah. And so in conclusion, Yone, you know, um, I know that your lab is doing a lot of work in this area. So if you look at sort of the research trajectory. Um, the which? Uh, the the research you know going on in in different universities and and other areas if you if you sort of look forward five ten years where do you think we will you know have a higher level of um, comprehension regarding the brain you know which which <laughs> which uh, tangent do you think we are going to going to go further on the next five ten years hmm um I think there's two possible directions, right? One is that a huge amount of energy is currently being put into mice. So there's this idea that we we can not just under, you know, we don't just know these mice's genomes. We know we can measure their transcriptomes, so we can see which genes are active or not at any moment in time. And we can record from a huge number of the neurons in a mouse over time while the mouse is doing a task. So we essentially can kind of capture a large proportion of the information about what's going on in the system in the in a mouse model. And the Allen Institute here in Seattle is doing fantastic work on this, but lots of other groups are kind of working in the same domain. So one is kind of getting more and more information about a pretty simple animal model. And I think that's very exciting, um, but it, I think there's going to be a, still going to be a big jump to how we use that to explain something as complicated as a human. <laughs> yeah. I think you know, even if we understood a mouse perfectly, we would still be a very long way from understanding a human, even one that's been playing video games. This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.